0: Welcome to Brave Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us today. We're in a series on Sundays going through the Gospel of Mark, but we also want to encourage you. If you live in the area, go to church and check out our home churches that are gathering together around these teachings throughout the week. We believe the kind of church Jesus came to start is more than a crowd. It's friends on a mission living life together. Another great way to connect further is through social media, where there is content designed to inspire and inform you. Here's this week's talk. Well, hey, thanks for joining us. Good to see you guys. Man, I love our community. I love what we're a part of. And last week, we started a series called People of Worship. Quick show of hands if you were here last week for part one. Okay, most of you. That's awesome. So today, we're continuing that. And we are talking about what it means to be a people of worship. Because everybody worships something, and we were created to worship. And so when we worship the thing that we were created to worship, everything changes. There's a passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 23. And it says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is looking for people to worship him. But this worship that he's looking for can't be confined to an hour a week on Sundays. It's so much more than we typically think of. And if you didn't get notes, raise your hand. Our ushers will get those to you. You're going to want to follow along. They have the home church questions on the back. But we're going to be in Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. Mark 11, 12 through 25. And this passage that we're looking at is kind of like a play with three different scenes. And each of these scenes is full of drama, OK? It's full of intensity. Unexpected things are happening. Uh, my wife and I recently, just two weeks ago, spent four life-changing hours at the DMV, OK? I don't know what the deal is. It's, in the last decade, there have been so many amazing advancements in technology. Our lives are more comfortable, more convenient. And somehow, the DMV has not changed. <laughs> Like, the only thing I can see is that there's advertisements on screens now, and you can take the test on a computer. It still takes forever. Like, we got there before they even opened, and there's a line around the building. So, here we are, and we're sitting there, and we're like, what are we gonna do? Like, do they have Wi Fi? Of course they don't have Wi Fi. And, and so then I remember that my phone has a mobile hotspot. And so I pull out my computer, and we start watching Netflix. Like, we've got four hours to kill. So we're binge watching this show. And you know when you're watching a show and and you don't know it's the season? I mean, the season finale, you expect something crazy to happen, but you don't know it's the season finale. And and so we didn't know because we'd just been watching so many episodes. And I'm not going to tell you what the show is because you'll judge me. And so we're sitting there and we're watching this. And this episode, I guess it was the finale, it sneaks up on us. And this character that we liked gets blown away by a shotgun. (laughs) Okay, so he's dead. And in this moment, We've got our headphones on. We're sitting there. It's pretty quiet. Nobody's really happy to be at the DMV. And Marcy screams. And everybody like looks at us. I drop the computer. It's so embarrassing. Have you ever been startled by something unexpected? Sometimes it's scary, right? Sometimes it's exciting. Um, like when you get unexpected good news, or something happens that you maybe weren't even sure was possible. In our passage today, Jesus startles some people and he does some really unexpected stuff and that's an understatement. I mean, these are his followers. These are the people who are closest to him and they didn't even see it coming. They're blown away. Has God ever done something unexpected in your life? Maybe you were set in your way of seeing the world or set in your way of seeing God and then you heard something or something happened and all of a sudden you're left trying to piece things back together again. What, what could this be? What just happened? What does this even mean? Unexpected things cause us to reevaluate. They can be scary. They can be exciting. But what's so amazing about unexpected circumstances is the way that they reset our expectations. I believe God is building us up to be a people of worship, true worshipers. But first, sometimes he needs to reset our expectations, Sometimes he does this through, through unexpected circumstances. Sometimes it's our expectations that aren't in a line with what he's doing, that aren't lining up in a way that we can worship him truly. Maybe God hasn't opened a door that you've been wanting him to open. This could be at work. This could be a job. It could be a business deal. It could be your living situation. Maybe you didn't get the apartment or the house or the situation that, that you were praying God would give you or whatever it could be, whatever it might be, whatever this is in your life that God hasn't delivered on, the way you've been praying or expecting him to, it's it's something that he may be wanting to use to reset your expectations. Write this down in your notes. People of worship allow God to reshape their expectations. People of worship allow God to reshape their expectations this can be one of the hardest and most maturing things that we experience as followers of Jesus. True worship cannot happen without surrendering our expectations. And a surrendered life means to hold our plans, our dreams, and our way of doing things loosely enough for God to reshape them. I believe this is a a spiritual world that we live in. And, And part of that reality is spiritual warfare that takes place over our worship. There's a story earlier in the Gospel of Mark that we looked at where Jesus goes out into a desert and he's tempted by the devil. And one of the things he's tempted with, he takes him up onto a hilltop and he looks out and he says, see, all of these kingdoms, all of them could bow to you. You could have all of this if you'll do one thing. He wanted him to worship him. Instead of worshiping his father, he wanted him to worship him. And he was willing to give him everything for it. That is how important worship is. That's how valuable it is. There is a battle going on for our worship. And so we need God's help. And so we're going to begin this morning before we look at this passage. And we're going to ask God to help us. So if you'd bow your heads with me, this is just a moment between us and God. We're going to pray and ask God to be with us and to speak to us. We know he is with us, but we need his help to see maybe some of the areas or things in our lives that are competing with our worship of him. God, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you love us, that when we wander or drift, you never stop reaching out for us. You never stop speaking to us or pursuing us. And so even when we're rocked by the unexpected, you are with us. God, you're with us right now in this room, and if we quiet our hearts and listen, you'll teach us something new about you. You'll teach us something new about what you're doing in our lives. You will show us a new way to worship you. So, God, I pray that you would help us this morning to see the things that you were trying to show us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So, for those of you who are just joining us, or a little refresher, if you were here last week, I want to remind you where we left off in our story. So Jesus has just made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. There's palm branches being waved. It's a big moment. People are shouting, Hosanna. So this appears on the outside to be one of the most spectacular moments of worship ever, when in reality, it's a lot more like they're shouting, Jesus, do what we want. Jesus, do it right now. Give us what we want, when we want it. See, it wasn't worship at all. What was going on inside their hearts what was, a, was a cry for their way. And so that's, so that's where we left off. And then Jesus goes to the temple, and it's late. Nobody's there. It's pretty anticlimactic. And so he leaves and goes to Bethany. And so this is where we pick back up scene one, starting in verse 12. It says, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went out to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. And so then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. So they're on their way. They're traveling by foot. And Jesus gets hungry. They see a fig tree, but it doesn't have any fruit on it. So Jesus curses it. Jesus got hangry okay? He's hungry. He's angry. If you ever, Have you ever been that way, guys? Yeah? Like, maybe right now. I don't know. Uh, hopefully, you ate something before you came. We might have a few donuts left. I don't know. But the next time you get hangry and a friend or a spouse or somebody is like, hey, you need to calm down. Just say, I'm being like Jesus right now, okay? Even Jesus got hangry, and so he comes up to this tree, and there's no fruit on it. And I love Mark's commentary because he says, there's, hey, it's not the season for, for figs. Like, Jesus, like God, you don't know that it's not the season for figs. And so he says this, and, and Jesus gets angry at the tree. And this is kind of peculiar, right? Like, why did Jesus get so upset? Well, it was April, and we know that because it was Passover, and in Palestine, fig trees actually produced crops of small edible buds in the month of March before Passover. And so local peasants would eat these small buds as fruit. So there should have been fruit budding on these trees and and an absence of these small buds meant that this tree would bear no fruit for the whole year. Now here's what we need to catch because it's not about the tree. Jesus is giving a prophetic sign of God's coming judgment on Israel, to a group of people who have been spiritually unfruitful. The truth is, even if Mark didn't understand this moment and what was happening at the time when he was writing his gospel, he definitely did. Because the word he uses for seasons, when he says it's not the season for fruit, is the Greek word kairos, which isn't talking about a season of the year. It's talking about a spiritual season. It's referring to the time where God's kingdom would begin being established on Earth. The time has come. And when Christ returns, this time will come in fullness. So right now, Jesus is speaking prophetically, and he's using this fig tree as a symbol to talk about some of the things that will change very soon. Jesus is saying, your religious system, the way that you're worshiping, it's broken. It's not working. It's not producing fruit. The results aren't good. And so just like this fig tree is barren, so is the temple. Number one, in your notes, God expects us to bear fruit. God expects us to bear fruit. Um, Do you know what the very first thing that God commands of humanity in Scripture? The first part of the first thing that God says in Genesis 128 is to be fruitful. From the beginning, they're in this garden that God created for them to live in, and he tells them to be fruitful. And I find this so interesting because when I think of the garden, I think of this lush, beautiful, this is a rawly beautiful natural place, right? Kind of like we're up in, in the Sierra Nevadas on a hike around Lake Tahoe or you're on an island somewhere and it's just beautiful. But actually, God wanted them to work in the garden. He wanted them to build things in it. See, the garden actually became more beautiful When they did the work, when they built trails, and when they did whatever that work looked like, this garden was supposed to be a place where sacred work happened, and it was a work of worship. See, I think sometimes the way that we talk about things that we deem more spiritual, like prayer gatherings or Bible studies or singing songs, it can actually cause us to miss just how spiritually significant God desires every part of our lives to be. God's vision is for our work, to be worship, not to separate what happens in church and what happens at our jobs. You don't have to work at this church or any church for your work to be worshiped, for it to be considered spiritual, for it to bear fruit. See, God is bringing uh, peace into the world. And the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. God is shaloming the world. And he does this through our worshipful work. Um, When a realtor or a loan officer helps someone get into a home that's a good fit for their future and their family, that's bringing peace into the world. When someone in sales sells something and they sell something that's useful or beneficial and they do it with integrity, that brings peace into the world. When an artist paints a beautiful painting or writes a song that brings joy or, or a film, creates a film that helps people understand their lives more fully, that is bringing peace into the world or when something's coded that'll affect millions of lives and bring greater efficiency and power to to what we do, that's fruitful work. And it's also an act of war. By doing work that brings peace into the world, we're going against the devil's agenda. Satan has an agenda and it's to create uh, disorder and chaos. So when we're doing things that bring more peace into God's creation, that is an act of war. God is overcoming evil with good by creating creatures in his image and saying, let's go build some beautiful things together. Let's go do some stuff that brings more peace to our friends, more peace to our neighborhoods, more peace to the world. So how is your work bearing fruit? Maybe you've never thought about your work this way. For some of you, maybe God wants to show you a way that your work can have greater meaning when you connect it to the way that the company you work for or the things that you're doing that's bringing peace to other people or blessing to other people's lives, by connecting it to worshiping God, we, we share in his mission. For others, maybe you can't think of one way that your work is benefiting people. And maybe this is a moment to reevaluate if this is the work that God's called you to. But whoever, whoever you are, if you're in this room, if you're following Jesus, God expects us to bear fruit. And that means that our work is meant to be worship, that in some way it's meant to be connected to his mission in bringing more peace to this planet. So let's take a look at scene two. This is the next scene. And this is where, just a little warning here, this is where things start to get a little crazy, okay? Verse 15, it says, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city this is a famous scene, and, and I remember hearing this story as a kid and being so impressed by it because it's such a bold moment. Jesus walks into this temple. He sees the injustice, and he does something about it. He starts flipping over tables. Have any of you ever flipped over a table? Like, you were so angry you flipped the table? Like, don't raise your hand, maybe. Um, I've never flipped the table. I might have, like, kicked the chair one time or something. I don't know. But flipping a table, that's serious. Jesus is furious. And it's actually a little more complex than we might think. See, as mod- a modern audience, we usually read this and, and just kind of interpret it as, man, maybe God doesn't want us selling certain things in the lobby, right? <laughs> like maybe, maybe those t-shirts that we're selling, like, you know, there is that time that Jesus flipped the tables. So we got to be a little careful. No, the, their temple and, and our churches were, were so different. In fact, to understand this a little bit better, let's take a look at this map. So we've got a map of the temple, This outer area that's actually quite large is the court of the Gentiles. And so this is where our story is unfolding. They're in this court of the Gentiles, and Gentile is a word for anyone who is non-Jewish. And so they're confined to this outer court. They're not allowed any further into the temple. Those other parts are sacred. They had very specific rules and regulations for who was allowed in the different parts And so this is probably a recent innovation that they're selling things. The high priest Caiaphas is allowing them to sell stuff and to do different things to generate more income. And so in addition to selling things that people would use for sacrifice, like birds, animals, wine, salt, oil, all of these different goods that they were purchasing, they were also loading up their merchandise and traders that needed to get from one side of the city to the other would go through the temple as a shortcut. And so they'd pay a toll, and they could travel through, and it would save them a lot of time. And so this temple shortcut is something that Jesus was very outraged by. He's looking at all of this, and he's saying, this is so far from God's intention for this place. This is supposed to be a place for people to commune with God, not pass through with their goods, This was a strategic move. When Jesus flipped the tables, he was cutting off the shortcut. He's cutting off the traffic through the temple. And then he says this. He says, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it, and let's catch this, a den of robbers, a den of robbers. I think this is where a lot of our confusion around this verse lies is this idea of a den of robbers. You know, We read this and we think, oh, they're ripping people off. And they might have been, but what Jesus is actually saying is he's saying, you're comfortable here. Like, you're robbers out there, and this is your den, and you're, you're taking refuge here. You feel safe here. See, robbers don't rob in their den, right? This is the place that they retreat to. They were thieves and sinners outside the temple. And ironically, they felt the safest in its courts, So, Jesus is calling them out. He's saying, How could you let this place fall so far from God's intention? People thought they could find forgiveness here and communion with God no matter how they lived on the outside, and they saw no connection to their actions outside this temple to their relationship with God. Their faith was completely compartmentalized. So, Jesus is looking at all of this, and he's saying, This thing is so messed up. This thing is so broken that it needs to be destroyed. We need a completely new way of worshiping. So number two in your notes, Jesus is building a radically inclusive community. Jesus is building a radically inclusive community. This incident was a prophetic protest to a day where the temple as they knew it will be completely destroyed. See, like, like he did on this day over 2,000 years ago, Jesus wants to reset our expectations of what it means to be a people of worship. This is not what they expected. See, during Jesus' entire ministry, he was gathering the outcasts, gathering those considered unpure, the handicapped, even the Gentiles. And this temple system that they had didn't have room for that kind of ministry. Its walls were built for keeping people out. But Jesus expected the temple to reflect the same radically inclusive love that was on display in his ministry. Jesus is saying. This isn't how we're gonna do things moving forward. The church community should be the most welcoming and accepting place on the planet because that's what Jesus modeled for us. Now, does that mean anything goes? No, look at Jesus. He's, He's judging the religious people. He's judging people whose lives aren't lining up with their belief in him. In fact, Jesus held people who claimed to know the most, the most accountable, So what does this mean for us here at Brave? It means that we're gonna lead with truth and grace. We're creating a community where everyone is welcome and everyone can belong regardless of where they come from. Now that doesn't mean anything goes. God loves us just as we are, but he also loves us too much to leave us that way. Following Jesus means that we're coming under his authority and we're gonna learn more about what that looks like next week but what does it mean to come under the authority of Christ? It means to, to answer to him. It means that the highest voice in our lives is no longer our own. It's no longer a parent. It's no longer anyone else other than God. That is the highest voice. Now, God works through authority. He works through parents. He works through um, all, all these different... We're going to go more into that next week. I don't want to get too distracted right now. But the point is, no one should ever be excluded from the opportunity to commune with God. No one. And this temple system, it had so many problems. It was so messed up. In fact, it fostered racism. It led Jewish people to fear and even hate anyone outside their culture. One scholar writes this. He says, the strain between Jew and Gentile, male and female, would never be settled as long as the temple stood with its series of holy barriers, each saying to a different group, no entry. Jesus calls for an end to the exclusivism that allows prayer and sacrifice for only a select few. Racism isn't a political issue or just an American problem. At its core, it's a sin problem. And it's been a problem since the moment that sin entered this world. And do you know what one of the most powerful ways we combat this sin is? Is by building a community of culturally, generationally, and ethnically diverse people worshiping God together. See, when a diverse community gathers for worship, it's an act of war. It's an uncommon piece, And so how do we do this? How does our church become more diverse? Uh, one of Jesus' disciples named John quotes Jesus saying something so profound. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So here's a thought, and it's really simple. When all of us love our neighbors and our friends who look differently than we do, enough to invite them and and include them in our worship. We're creating peace. We're combating evil. We're doing something so uncommon. Now, I'm white, and my wife is 100% Mexican, and I'm not just saying this to white people, okay? I'm talking to everyone in the room. When you, whoever you are, build relationship with someone who's different than you to the point where you're close enough, to share your faith, to invite them to Orange Fest, to invite them to a home church, to invite them to a Sunday gathering, you're bringing peace in the world. And according to Jesus, that's fruitful. At the core of this, I think it all starts with believing one thing. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're here today, there's one thing that you must believe to be fruitful. And that is that Jesus loves everyone as much as he loves you. Jesus loves everyone as much as he loves you. So let's take a look at our final scene. The last things that Jesus has to say. Scene three, it takes place uh, where it all began, back at the fig tree. It says, in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered, and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that God, uh, that, that, what they say, that what, believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that the Father in heaven may forgive you your sin." So this fig tree represents their old way of worshiping, and it's more destroyed than they ever could have imagined. It's completely withered from the roots. And so Jesus has completely shattered their expectations of what being a people of worship looked like. And he, and he breaks down all the walls, okay? He says, let me, let me tell you something really important. He says, my temple will be a house of prayer for all the nations, You're used to coming here and and worshiping and making sacrifices with people who look just like you and you know the system, you know what sins require, what sacrifices, when to do them, how to do them, all of these things, but I'm gonna teach you to worship me with people who look nothing like you and I'm no longer gonna require you to make sacrifices the way you've done your whole lives. In fact, now your life will become a living sacrifice. Jesus is bringing his power to his people through prayer. So number three, in your notes, prayer unleashes God's power. 1 Corinthians 3, 6, 16 says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? See, now we are the temple. Followers of Jesus, for all of us, the spirit of God now lives within us. We no longer need to visit a place to experience the power of prayer. In the book of Mark, he actually states three times at the beginning, middle, and end that nothing will be achieved without prayer. So then as Jesus wraps up this day, he gives us several keys to what praying powerful prayers looks like. And this is what I wanna leave you with today. And then we're gonna have a time to respond in worship and prayer together. In fact, I'm gonna invite the band to come join me, but we're gonna look at these three things that Jesus leaves us with for praying powerful prayers. And the first thing he says is to have faith in God. Now, if you think about it, even the act of prayer is an act of faith, because if if you have no faith, then you're just talking to yourself or you're just talking to thin air, right? I mean, even the act of prayer is an investment. When you set aside time or when you come uh, into this place and you, you begin talking to God, You're making a statement about your faith. Maybe for some of you, your next step is to pray more, to spend more time talking to God. He loves that. He recognizes that faith. For others, the second thing Jesus says is to have belief in his power. God wants us to come before him with faith and actually believe that he can accomplish what we're asking for. Now, this isn't magic. He's not a genie God giving you your wishes. And if you believe, then they'll come true. The assumption is that you're surrendered to God's will, saying, God, if this is your will, if this is your best for me in this situation, I know that there are things that you see that I don't see. There are things that you know that I don't know. But if this is your will, I believe that you can do this. That's a powerful prayer. I'm sure that all of us can think of something in our lives that require prayer. And if you're having a hard time thinking of something, maybe you haven't yet experienced the power of prayer or you've forgotten how powerful it is. So prayer is amazing. The fact that we can talk to God and that it changes things in the world we live. And and if if life's going good right now and most of your prayers are prayers of gratitude and gratefulness and you're just enjoying time with God, I would just encourage you to begin reaching out to your friends and and praying for others and seeing maybe the power of God working through your prayers in the lives of someone else. It's bringing peace to the world. The last thing, and this is where Jesus throws a curveball, okay? This is a big twist. Nobody saw this coming. He says to have a forgiving spirit, a forgiving spirit. See, this is a new concept. Until Jesus came along, prayer was really just about us and God, people and God. But now Jesus is saying, if you hold anything against anyone else, forgive them so that your Father in heaven will forgive you of your sins. Because when we withhold forgiveness towards each other, we're denying the fact that God forgave us, forgetting that we're just as unworthy until God forgave us. Jesus is saying, come before me in faith, believe that I can do what you're asking me to do, but also I want you to be right with one another. So let me ask you something. How powerful have your prayers been lately? How powerful are your prayers? How's God been moving on your behalf? What stories do you have to tell? Jesus' words invite us to take inventory, To, to ask the question, how full of faith are we? Do we believe that he can do what we're asking him to do? And is there anyone that we need to forgive? God is building us to be a beautifully diverse Radically inclusive community of people who worship him together. And the devil doesn't like that. The devil is scared of that kind of community. But for some of us, the first step towards being a part of this amazing plan that is unfolding is forgiving someone. Sometimes our frustration and our hurt towards someone in our past or something, maybe it's recent, maybe it was a long time ago. We can get so comfortable with it and so used to it that we forget how much it's affecting us. But there is nothing sweeter than lifting the load of of withholding forgiveness, of letting that go. So as we close, I wanna ask God to help us again, but to help us to surface anything that we have left unresolved. Maybe with a friend, maybe with a parent, a family member, it could be a son or daughter. It could be an old coworker. It could be an ex-relationship. If there is anything that we, that we have not resolved, that we have not made right with someone else, we wanna pray that God would bring those things to mind so that we can be right with him, right with others, and pray powerful prayers. Would you pray with me? God, if there is anyone that we have been withholding forgiveness from, maybe they said something or did something or we overheard something and it just offended us, Whatever it was, it is time to forgive. The toxic effects of what you've been holding in can end today. The reality is when we withhold forgiveness, it mostly always only affects us. It affects the power of our prayers, not the person we're withholding from. God, I pray that we would be set free today from the hold of unforgiveness and the effects of unforgiveness in our lives. If there is anything, God, I just pray that you would bring it to mind right now so that we can ask forgiveness. So we can ask forgiveness of you for holding this grudge or holding this thing in. And if we need to talk to someone this week, that we would talk to them or if it's just between us and you, that we would make things right in our heart. In your name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's our hope that you will let this message go deep within your soul and allow Jesus to do the work that only He can do. We also want to encourage you to partner with us here at Brave. Go to brave.church and become a regular giver and be part of how God is using this message to help people find and follow Jesus.